The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Psalm 10.1 says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You have to love the honesty of the Bible, right? How it directly deals with where we are, with our feelings, with our struggles, with our real lives. One of the realities of life is that we all go through difficult times. We all have times of discouragement. We all sing the blues. The realities of life can oftentimes be discouraging and difficult. Sometimes we even find ourselves in prolonged times of discouragement, perhaps even now, as we're all going through this pandemic. If that has ever happened to you, then you're in really good company. Perhaps the greatest preacher in the history, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was a person that suffered from deep discouragement. On a notable Sunday morning in 1866, Spurgeon shocked his 5,000 listeners from the pulpit of his London's Metropolitan Tabernacle when he announced, I'm the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. For some in his audience, it was incomprehensible to think that the world's greatest preacher would know such a valley of despair. In the introduction to his sermon that day, he began with these words, I have to speak to myself today, and whilst I shall be endeavoring to encourage those who are distressed and downhearted, I shall be preaching, I trust, to myself. For I need something which shall cheer my heart. Why, I cannot tell. Wherefore, I do not know. But I have a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. My soul is cast down within me. I feel as if I'd had rather die than live. All that God hath done by me seems to be forgotten. And my spirit flags and my courage breaks down. I need your prayers. What an amazingly honest and transparent moment of reality from C.H. Spurgeon. He had the largest church on planet Earth. He was the most influential Christian leader on planet Earth. And yet amazingly, this godly man says, all that God hath done by me seems to be forgotten. My spirit flags. My courage breaks down. I need your prayers. The great reformer Martin Luther suffered from depression. One author puts it this way. Sometimes Luther was cast into great despondency. He called those times the dark night of the soul. One of the most serious periods of depression that Luther experienced came in the middle of 1527, 10 years after the start of the Reformation. In late April, Luther began to experience some physical problems, and he began to suffer bouts of dizziness and fainting. In July, he felt so weak he was sure he was going to die. Then in August, the plague hits Wittenberg. He wrote to his friend, Philip Melanchthon, I despaired. I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain, and I still tremble. Luther went on to say, I felt completely abandoned by Christ. 
I labored under the uncertainties and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. The great reformer Martin Luther felt abandoned by God, overwhelmed by desperation, even to the point of spiritual rebellion. I labored under the uncertainty and storms of desperation. So many of us have been there. One of the greatest missionaries in history, the pioneering missionary Adoniram Judson, was one of the first foreign missionaries ever sent from the United States. He followed God's call to Burma in 1813. One author said in 1825, after nearly a year and a half in prison, just for being a foreigner, Adoniram was released in order to serve as an interpreter for peace negotiations with the East India Company. He spent a little time with his wife and and baby Maria, but was called back to service. The separation from his wife and his baby were final. His wife soon died, and and little Maria followed soon afterwards. Adoniram, in, in an effort to assuage his grief, poured himself into his translation work. But the fact and the shock of his wife's death affected him greatly. It was a time of despondency. In his letter he wrote to his in-laws, he wrote, God to me is the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. This great pioneering missionary who risked it all to follow God, to bring the gospel to Burma, this great amazing man of faith said, God to me is the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him. Not. We also have Holy Spirit inspired stories of great men of faith dealing with deep discouragement. Job suffered great loss, and in chapter 3, he laments that he was ever born, saying, For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear has come upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. The weight and responsibility of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land was at times more than Moses could carry. Listen to what he says in Numbers chapter 11. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all these people upon me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that I swore to give to your fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. The great Moses, distraught, overwhelmed, discouraged. The great prophet Elijah, just coming off perhaps his greatest moment of being used by God in confronting the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, falls into deep discouragement. 1 Kings 19 says, Ahab told Jezebel 
all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. The great prophet Elijah, feeling abandoned, feeling alone, feeling fearful, discouraged. We could go on and on and on with story after story after story of discouragement. But the point is, godly people, people of deep faith, people that sincerely and completely follow God, people who are used by God, even these great people of faith, deal with discouragement. It's real. Feelings of abandonment from God, loneliness and loss. Sometimes we as Christians, we can tend to pretend, right? We put on our happy face so that when we're at church or when we're around other believers, we hold back. You know, we hold back on revealing the real struggles of our souls. Now, in so many ways, that's understandable. Sometimes what we're going through is not only difficult, but it's private. But we can't let that keep us from being honest. We need to seek help. And we need to be open to what's happening in our lives. And we especially need to seek help and to be open to God. It's so important that we're transparent, that we're real, that we're honest, that we're open in our relationship with God. God can handle your honesty. Psalm 42 is an honest psalm. It can help us. It can encourage us. It can teach us. Turn in your Bibles there to Psalm 42. Psalm 42 and follow along as I read. The scripture says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, from Hermon and Mount Mitzar, deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, 
the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Father, now we have read your scriptures and we ask that this truth that you've recorded for us all those years ago would come alive and teach us and challenge us and encourage us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Psalm 42 has a lot to teach us when we feel dry and God feels distant. The superscript above the psalm says, to the choir master, a maskal of the sons of Korah. Now, the term maskal is a somewhat obscure word. It comes from a root word meaning to be wise or to instruct. So it probably is a literary designation for a psalm of instruction. In other words, the superscript is telling us that here is wise counsel uh, from God about how to trust him through difficult times. There are 13 maskal psalms. The sons of Korah, now they were Levites that produced and performed music for the tabernacle and for the temple in Jerusalem. They were placed in charge of temple worship by King David. There are 11 psalms from the sons of Korah. This psalm's connection to the sons of Korah help us understand how this psalm was used. This psalm was written to be sung in worship at the temple. This psalm is a choir number. It's a choir song sung by the Levites in worship at the temple. It's a song that was specifically intended to encourage and to give wisdom to those who came to worship God. This most honest psalm was a worship song, a song sung in the temple. We don't know the exact setting of the, that the psalmist was in, but we know that the psalmist is in the midst of a serious time of emotional drought and spiritual dryness with God. He's separated from the temple. He's separated from worship of God. In verse 4, he looks back longingly to his great times of worship and celebration with God and with his people at the temple. Isn't that us today? I mean, so many of us can, can reflect those same feelings as verse 4 in our day. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, why I would when I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of my God with glad shouts and songs of praise and multitude-keeping festival. He's looking back and thinking about all those positive memories, remembering the joy, remembering the inspiration, remembers his experience of worship. These are intense memories, full of great emotion as he pours out his soul to God. 
He remembers how he used to lead processions of worshipers to the temple during the annual pilgrimage festivals. He would lead them in singing the Psalms of Ascent as they traveled like a parade through the streets of Jerusalem and up to the Temple Mount. But these wonderful, precious memories of the past had now become a source of discouragement for his present because he's feeling the deep loss of the fellowship and of the corporate communion and worship. He was feeling that God was somehow, somewhere over there, distant, lost in the past. Verse 3 says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? The psalmist is living in isolation to the land and to the temple. He can't experience God's presence and and the wonderful worship at the temple. And those around him are mocking him. Where is your God? His enemies didn't attack him. They attacked his God, questioning the power and the character of his God. They're asking, where is your God when you need him the most? Where is your God now? Where is your God? Is he with you? No. So where is he? If your God was really God, then wouldn't he do something about the difficulty that you're facing? Through his own tears, he's probably wondering to himself, where is my God? In his despondency, he says that his tears have been his food. His appetite is gone, and in its place is sorrow and loss. I think this is an important context for help us to understand verses 1 and 2, to help us understand how this chapter begins in light of his tears and sorrow, in light of his mocking and loss, in light of remembering and missing the times of worship and the intense emotion of pouring out his soul to God. It is in this time of spiritual dryness, spiritual distance, that he calls out to God with such passionate longing. As a deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. His life challenge is difficult circumstance, his discouragement, his tears, his questions didn't drive him from God, but drove him more passionately to God. And so it can be for us. The Hebrew word pants means to have a keen, consuming desire for. The psalmist's deepest desire in the midst of his discouragement was his God. Like a deer that's panting in desperation, need for water, so his soul is thirsting for God. He needed the life-giving water of hope. He needed the life-giving water of refreshment and encouragement. He needed the life-giving water of a new perspective. He needed sustenance for his soul. The next phrase just intensifies the first. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. God feels distant. His foes are mocking him, saying, where is your God? His discouragement, his tears are real. But the psalmist knows one very important truth. No matter what his circumstances, no matter what he's facing, no matter what he's feeling, God, the living God, and all of his bountiful character and all of his amazing power, 
God is still reigning over everything, including his life. His God is the one true living God. Our God is the one true living God. There are at least two important keys to overcoming discouragement mentioned in these verses. One is to never stop pursuing God, to never stop seeking him. When life doesn't make sense, when your circumstances are difficult and God seems distant, that is not the time to let your heart wander from God, but it is during those very difficult times that you need to redouble your effort to seek God, to seek his will, to seek his comfort. When your soul is dry and you're wandering around in the desert of of the wilderness of life, so many people turn to other things to try to find fulfillment and satisfaction, to try to find hope and meaning and answers to life. But when we come into those times, it is so important as believers to remember that the only one with living water that can truly satisfy our souls and give the hope and meaning to life to give us the answers, the only one is our living God. Only living water from our living God can truly refresh and encourage our living souls. We must pant after God. We must long for him as a consuming desire. What did Jesus say in the great Sermon on the Mount? He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When we are dry, when we are discouraged, that is a time for our souls to pant after God. Another truth to remember is that no matter what our circumstances, no matter what we are facing or feeling, no matter what the discouragement is at hand, our God reigns. Our God is the living God. Our God is the ruling God. Our God is the sovereign God. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Our God reigns. Always. That brings us to the psalmist's first refrain of faith and hope. How does the psalmist respond to his discouragement? He responds in faith. And he anticipates hope. Psalm 42.5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God. The first sentence so powerfully shows the emotional state of the psalmist. His soul is downcast. His soul is in turmoil. To have a soul that is cast down, it means to be distraught. It means to be despairing. We use similar terms to describe sometimes the feelings we have. We say that we're feeling low or that we're feeling down. Well, that next word he uses to describe his soul is that his soul is in turmoil. His soul is restless. His soul is disquieted. It comes from the Hebrew 
meaning a, a loud noise, a great commotion, an uproar. The idea here is that his soul is like a loud, discordant note out of tune, like the groanings of one's heart in deep sorrow. The situation is hard. The situation is confusing. It'd be easy to blame God and then to leave God. But the psalmist's focus here is not asking God why, but asking himself. Did you notice that? The psalmist does not ask God why. He asked himself the questions. This is a very important point of application for us. It's not wrong to ask God why. But most often, we get the same reply from God that Job received. I'm God. I'm in control of all things. I see and understand things that are totally impossible for you to see or to understand. I have not forsaken you. Put your faith in me. In our lifetimes here on earth, we'll rarely understand God's reasoning and motives. Why? Because he's God. And we're not. God does not answer to us. We answer to him. With God's perfect and infinite care and wisdom and power and sovereignty. And our, and our very finite and very limited and very sin-tainted understanding. It is impossible for us to understand all of God's reasonings. Even if God did reveal it to us. See, the the better way for us is not to question God, but as the psalmist did, to question ourselves, answering introspective and self-examining questions. They can be so helpful. So often when we're down in the dumps, we we stay there longer than we need to because we don't ask ourselves the hard questions. We don't seek to find out why we are truly discouraged. Trying to understand the cause of our discouragement and turmoil can really help us to seek the proper treatment and the changes that are needed. Proper and godly self-examination can be used by God to bring insight and healing and forgiveness and understanding. Sometimes we need to stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves. Did you get that? We need to stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves. We need to preach the truth to ourselves. The psalmist, through the dryness and distance and discouragement, is engaging in his faith. He's seeking God. He's seeking the truth. His faith is being tried. But it is his faith that will triumph. Faith and despair doesn't diminish in doubt. But true faith in despair triumphs in hope. Faith in despair doesn't diminish in doubt. But true faith in despair triumphs in hope. That's exactly what the psalmist does. He literally commands himself to hope. Hope in God. He tells himself, put your hope in God. Although the psalmist felt isolated from God, he stirs up his mind to override his emotions, to override his feelings, commanding himself to put his hope in God. Hope. Hope is waiting in anticipation for God to act. 
Hope says to us, I will praise you again. Hope says to us, God is my salvation. Hope is anticipation in God, even when it feels like God is distant. The psalmist had great confidence in God and his ability to handle every and any situation. He prodded his heart to trust God, to trust him with a positive expectation that God's going to come through. God's going to work it out for God's good with his perfect wisdom, with his perfect plan, with his perfect love and his perfect timing. He knew what was the truth and he put his hope in God. Here's another very important point of application in dealing with discouragement. Thinking transforms feeling. Your mind trumps your emotions. Tell yourself the truth. In our culture, we're taught to live by our feelings. That feelings trump thinking. If it feels good, do it. My life is all about me. All about me feeling good and feeling happy. My pleasure is my highest goal. We're a society that feels first and then reacts. And then lastly, perhaps, we might actually start to think. And all of our lives are like a roller coaster, right? Fulls of ups and downs and twists and turns. The latest thrill, the latest disappointment. A life lived feelings first. A life lived on emotions is a life doomed to difficulty and despair and heartache. Now we all know that our thinking can override our feelings. While in the midst of a heated discussion behind closed doors, all of a sudden the phone rings. There's a knock on the door. And, and it's so totally amazing that you're instantly able to have your thinking control your emotions. And with the greatest of grace, you so calmly answer the phone or answer the door. We all know that our thinking can override our feelings. The Bible clearly and regularly commands us to challenge our lives to help us understand that we need to focus on our thinking. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 4 says that you were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to the former way of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3 says, You have put off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. If you want to be renewed, if you want to be transformed, which is the goal of every Christian, then the Bible clearly tells us that that takes place in our thinking, in the transforming and renewing of our minds through God's word. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that feelings are not important. They're God-given and significant and real. Emotions are real and valid and beautiful. But they're not the rulers of our lives. Our thinking should rule 
our lives. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's easy. It doesn't come naturally for us to put our thinking, to put the truth before our feelings, to guide and inform our emotions with the truth. But it's not only the right thing to do, it's what the Bible teaches us to do. See, Psalm 42 details the incredible emotional turmoil that the psalmist is under. It's real. It's significant. He's discouraged. He's depressed. But how does he deal with this? How does he come to grips with it? He commands his thinking. He commands his thinking to be clear and biblical and godly. He stops listening to himself and starts talking to himself with the truth. That doesn't make the difficulty of discouragement just magically disappear. But it does start him down the road to wholeness and to health. Proper and godly thinking is an important step in correctly dealing with the life challenges that we face. Sometimes, try as we might, we just can't get the proper thinking. We just can't understand the deep discouragement that we're in. We just can't see it. That's when we must seek help from people who are outside of the circumstance so they can help us, give us the proper perspective and challenge and and comfort us with the difficulties that we're facing. Seeking help from your friend, seeking help from your parents, seeking help from your pastor or a counselor is always a wise thing to do. We cannot do this life on our own. That's one of the reasons God created families. That's one of the reasons God created church. Because we need each other. We need help from time to time. That's natural. That's normal. Please, please never hold back from getting the help that you need to give you the insight and the perspective that you need to help handle the challenges in your life. Seek the truth that you need from God's word and seek the help that you need from Christian friend, counselor. Well, verse five ends with, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Another way to say that is, for I shall again praise him for God's saving help. With the psalmist renewing his mind and hope, even while in the midst of this difficult circumstance, his thinking changes. He proclaims the certainty of his future praise. He anticipates God's help and deliverance. He can be so sure of it because of his faith, because of his theology, because of his knowledge, because of his truth, because of his experience of God telling him that God delivers, God saves, God helps. He uses the possessive pronoun to describe his relationship with God. He is my God. You see, it's personal. It's intimate. It's real. Then in true biblical Hebrew parallelism poetry, the psalmist in verses 6 through 11 details again his difficult situation and restates again his resolute trust in God. In verse 7, he 
figuratively describes his distress with illustrations derived from violent water, deep calling to deep, your waves have gone over me. He's drowning in his sorrow. He's swept away and overpowered in his discouragement. He is tossed back and forth and sinking fast, feeling like there is no rescue coming. In verse 9, he says he feels forgotten by God, oppressed by his enemies. In verse 10, he is physically exhausted, dealing with all the questions without and all the questions within. Yet in the midst of all that is verse 8. Verse 8 says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He remembers God. He remembers God's covenant-keeping love. He remembers God's loyalty love. He remembers his loving kindness, his steadfast love. When all seems lost, he knows, he believes that God still commands his love for him. Even at night, when all these kinds of struggles seem to culminate and get worse, God's song is with him, and he prays to the God of his life. In the midst of his life challenges, he affirms God's sovereign love and care. Beloved, in the midst of our life challenges, we need to reaffirm the truth. God loves us. God loves you. Oh, the discouragement is real. Oh, the the heartache is real. But oh, yes, God's love for you is real. God loves you. And no discouragement, none, is able to separate you from God's love for you. Then the psalm ends with repeating of the remedy for his discouragement with his refrain of hope and faith. Why are you cast down, O soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Where are you today? Are you in a time of discouragement? Does God feel distant? Is your spiritual well dry? This world offers so many answers, but the Bible gives us one. Jesus, Jesus, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray and find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. As we make our lives about us, pursuing our own happiness, true happiness will elude us. As we make our lives about Jesus, about seeking him first, then true fulfillment is attainable. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Can you say in the midst of the difficulties of life, as the psalmist said, can you say as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living 
God? Are you thirsting for God? What really does your soul desire? What really is the longing of your heart? What is your consuming desire? May it be for us to be like that deer panting for water. So may we pant. May it be our consuming desire to know God and to be in God and to love God and to serve God. Oh God, may you be our God. May we thirst for you, our living God. Let's pray. Father, now we come to you in the the moment of this psalm to hear from your word. It's so honest. It's so real. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. It, it, It teaches us directly where we are in our lives in these days, discouragement and difficulty. Where are you, our God? Where are you? Right here with us. What have you done for us? You gave your only son to die on the cross, to die for our sins, to take upon him the punishment of us all, and then to rise again to offer each one of us life, eternal life, and not just that, but abundant life now. Life now! that we can know fulfillment, we can know purpose, we can know meaning, we can know comfort, we can know truth in the midst of discouragement because of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. Lord, we come to you now, each one of us, in the honesty of the moment, and we seek you. We seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.